You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news and stories from the 55 UEFA countries. On this episode of The Sweeper, we'll be rounding up the news and stories from early February, including the earthquake's impact on the Turkish Super League, the Belgian managerial appointment vetoed by a furniture supplier, and King Kazu's arrival in Portugal. Hello and welcome to the Sweeper podcast, your one-stop shop for all the news and stories from the 55 UEFA nations. Today we'll be rounding up all the action from across the continent in the first half of February and for the first time extending our reach beyond Europe's borders too. My name is Lee Wingate and I'm joined by my co-host Paul Watson, whose love for football in the furthest flung corners of the globe may have something to do with us deciding to venture outside Europe for the first time. Yeah, I, I think I was always going to drag you further out of Europe in the end, wasn't I? <laughs> We've already touched upon Greenland in the last episode, which is sort of in Europe, I suppose you could say. But in the last segment of today's show, we'll take a little look at some stories from South America, Africa and Asia, I believe. So looking forward to that. We talked last time about some of your footballing exploits in the likes of Micronesia, Mongolia and San Marino. I presume that you've seen a fair few live football matches in your time. What would you say is your most memorable live match experience? Ooh. Weirdly, and this is going to sound strange given my background, my most memorable experience in a way was at Enfield Town. And it's because it was 2018 and I had helped put together this tournament, the Kanifa World Football Cup, which is a World Cup for non-FIFA recognised sort of states and peoples. And we'd had this process of trying to bring all these teams to the UK and it was, you know, Tibet. Matabeliland, Tuvalu. We had teams coming from all over the world. Incredibly like stressful, fraught build-up. The game that really sticks in my mind was Tibet versus Northern Cyprus at Enfield Town Football Club. And I remember this day because everything was in chaos and we were worried about like threats from the council. We were worried about protests from groups that didn't want these teams playing, Chinese interference. We were properly on edge. And I just remember sitting there in the stand and realising that all the anthems had to be played so the tibetan anthem obviously quite a big deal there were tibetans everywhere hundreds of tibetans had turned up and we had to play the anthem and i realized that it was gonna have to run off my laptop via this really dodgy cable coming out of the pa booth i had all the anthems on my on my laptop but also i had all my normal music on my laptop and so i was like one click away from ladies and gentlemen please stand for the tibetan national anthem and me playing sort of like i don't know anything Supergrass or something <laughs> and I was like please do not <laughs> press the wrong tune and so that moment when that anthem crackled through onto the and the players like tears in their eyes people stood up and I just remember feeling like this wave of relief but also just like this is an amazing thing we're doing that moment would always stick with me because of the fear I had of playing the wrong anthem. You know what that reminds me of? That incident a couple of years ago where the Kazakhstan Olympic medal winner was was standing on the podium. And I think, did someone play the, the Borat theme tune, oh, theme tune by like accident? That. I remember there was a botched one the other day. Was it something like the North Korean anthem? They played the, the, the South Korean anthem or something like that. There was a, recently there was one of those like worst case scenario 
messing up ones. And we had a couple of those at the tournament where something like there were two anthems, there's Abkhazia were there, and obviously it's an unrecognised state within Georgia, and the worst thing that you could do was imply it's part of Georgia. Like, that would be the worst thing you could possibly do to the people. And I remember we had an anthem teed up, and it turned out this anthem had changed 20 years ago or something because this anthem we were about to play would have been incredibly offensive. Anthems are always a fraught thing, but when you're dealing with people who are denied the right to their identities, it's like the biggest <laughs> tension. So, yeah. I've really felt a new sense of appreciation for people who have to do that job of teeing up an anthem or pressing that button that will potentially cause absolute terrible events. <laughs> That's not a future career path for you then. We're not going to see you as the stadium announcer at Enfield Town at any point in the future. No, I, I don't think it's for me. And um, even less so at Fisher FC, where the council did actually ban us playing the anthems. And we had Tamil Alam there and they wanted to play the Tamil anthem and it was banned. So I had to kneel on the centre circle with my phone and a port portable speaker and blast it out. <laughs> what about you, though? I feel like I feel like those are mine. What are your what's your like standout experiences? I would have said up until recently that it was a game I saw in Hungary about 10 years ago, which was between MTK Budapest and Uzpest. And that game had absolutely everything. It was 3-3, lots of goals. There were red cards, yellow cards. I had some sort of processed cheese nachos, which I still feel are probably clogging my veins until this day. And the game was delayed because the stadium clock wasn't working. So I felt like <laughs> I felt like it just had a little bit of everything. But then the Sunday before last, I did a 90 minute hop across the border from Austria to Hungary. And I saw Gyur, who play in the second tier of Hungarian football I saw them play a league game against a team called Halidas and actually the main reason that we wanted to go to this stadium was because it's got a really unique setup there where actually behind one of the goals there's not a stand there's a hotel and you can literally just go into the hotel go onto the balcony and watch the game from the hotel balcony so we actually had tickets we paid a grand total of three euro 80 but we did go there for a beer before the match and we were out on the balcony just having a little look at the stadium, taking some photos. We got chatting to the waiter who ended up giving us a round on the house. So thanks very much, Benzer, if you happen to be listening. But he said, you've got a, you'll have to leave the lobby restaurant area at 2 p.m. because we've got a big booking coming in. And I was thinking to myself, well, this must be football fans who want to watch the game from the balcony. Why else would 200 people suddenly come in at that time on a Sunday afternoon? It turned out I was very wrong because... A group of women walked in, about 20, 25 of them, all wearing these. I can only describe them as, you know, those hats you used to get at Burger King, so the sort of golden <laughs> yeah. cardboard crowns. Yeah. They're all wearing these hats coming into the restaurant area. And I just thought, well, this is a very, very strange choice of location for a hen party. You know, like I presumed that was what it was. Hmm. But the door opened and more started coming in and more and more until there were literally about 200 or 300 women in the lobby area of this hotel, all wearing these crowns and all sitting there having a drink. And I was, I was incredibly curious about what was going on, but I didn't want to miss kickoff. So we left the hotel, went into the stadium. And it's a great stadium, by the way, because it reminds me a little bit of the Mastaya. Like the main stands are just really steep. So you're really high up and you've got like a proper aerial bird's eye view of the game. So it was super interesting. Gure ended up losing. They weren't, they weren't much good to be honest. They did have Tamash Priskin playing for them, who I remember from his days in England. Yeah. Um, but anyway, out of curiosity, we went back to the hotel after the game and I asked the waiter, I said, what are all of those women doing wearing those 
golden cardboard hats. And he said, they've all come from all over Hungary to attend a seminar called How to Get a Man. (laughs) (laughs) This was too much for me at this point. I was just in in fits of laughter. But yeah, they'd all paid to come and do this seminar on how to get a man, which I found incredibly ironic when there were 700 men in the stadium next door. Yeah. You know, that's like yeah. practice is there, ladies. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. I feel like Hungarian football seems to be the way to go. I've got to say, I'm starting to think I'm missing out now. Plenty of time, Paul, for you to get yourself out to Budapest or perhaps somewhere else and yeah, <laughs> and see some of it in, in all its glory. I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk more about ground hopping adventures on future episodes. So we'll park that chat there for today and start our continental roundup with the very sad news from Turkey, where an earthquake in the south of the country and in neighboring Syria occurred last week, claiming over 41,000 lives by the time of recording and leaving many more people injured and homeless. Our thoughts are with everyone in the region as the rescue operations go on and survivors continue to be pulled from the rubble. There have been losses of life in the football world too. Uh, Yeni Malachispor goalkeeper Ahmed Turkoslan has died as a result of the disaster, while Hatay Spor's Ghanaian player Christian Atsu and sporting director Tavut Sane are reportedly also missing. Paul, it's a super sad situation. Did you see these conflicting reports that Atsu had been pulled out of the rubble and then this U-turn saying that actually, no, he he hasn't. He's He's still missing. I did. And that was really awful. I mean, it's just dreadful. It's a dreadful situation. But the situation with Christian Atsi was really confusing. As you say, there were reports changing almost by the hour at one stage about whether he had been found, pulled from the rubble, was in hospital. I, I obviously don't want to point fingers. I know people are very keen to report and to report quickly when there's there's a disaster like this. But it did feel like some kind of due diligence was missed there if people are reporting these stories as true. And it's obviously incredibly upsetting to people close to him to be hearing these this kind of speculation about him, I'd have thought. I was really confused about how that's happened because obviously I'm sure there are ways to prevent this kind of thing in in the reporting world. There are ways to verify stories. So I'm, I'm really confused about what happened there. And I don't know if anyone really knows what happened. I think it's sort of the dangers with with Twitter and, and quickfire social media, isn't it? That, that something can be reported that's false and then suddenly it's circulating and everyone can see it and everyone believes it. But certainly we we hope that Christian Atsu's whereabouts are located and that he'll be back on a football pitch at some point soon. It's obviously an incredibly sad and moving story. And as you can imagine, it's had a big knock-on impact on the Turkish football season where fixtures are currently on hold until early March and multiple clubs from the affected regions have withdrawn from their respective leagues throughout the football pyramid. Two of the 19 clubs in Turkey's Super League, the top tier, have withdrawn, Hatispor and Gaziantep. In the second tier, Yeni Malachispor and Adanaspor have withdrawn. And as I say, there have been other teams pulling out further down too. Thanks to Volkan Izbasaran, a follower of ours on Twitter who got in contact with us uh, with the details of all of those clubs who have withdrawn. And the way it seems to be working is that the clubs that have withdrawn will be placed at the bottom of their respective table and their opponents will be awarded a 3-0 victory in every remaining game this season. But those clubs will be protected because they won't be relegated and they are assured of a place in the Super League next season. But there are some sort of I suppose, feelings that it's not an entirely level playing field because the fixtures of Hatay Sport and Gaziantep won't be retrospectively corrected 
which means that the teams that have already played them yeah. and potentially drop points will be missing out compared to teams such as Galatasaray, Fenerbahce and Bajiktas, who will all get six points because they haven't faced either team in the second half of the season. So I don't really know how to feel about that. Obviously, there are much bigger things than football in play here, but it does seem a little bit unfair that the fixtures up until now will stand and those afterwards won't. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, as you, as you say, like the, it feels kind of trivial to talk about the footballing side in a way when there's a, there's a human side, but these decisions have to be made and, you know, they, there has to be some sort of way of proceeding. And that doesn't seem like a particularly fair one. No, that because I think, yeah, to award an automatic 3-0 win to some teams when other teams may have dropped points does seem just clearly unfair. It's odd that that's the best system they could come up with, but it also feels like they're probably having to make this this very quickly, this judgment, which I think sometimes you see that when, when football associations have to make decisions very fast. They're often not the greatest of decisions. And, and with all the emotion that's flowing around at the moment, you do wonder if this would be the decision they would make if they had six months to decide, which they don't, you know, doesn't seem like a very logical step, this. There is a historical precedent to refer to in Turkey, because in August 1999, there was an earthquake on the North Anatolian Fault, which killed 17,000 people. And there was a team in the Super League at the time, Kossi Elispor, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but they were in a, a very heavily affected area by this earthquake. And they decided they didn't want to withdraw from the league because they wanted to give the people in the region some sort of happiness mm. after the disaster. So they had this sort of weird situation where they played all of their away games in the first half of the season because they literally couldn't play at home. As you can probably imagine, they were bottom of the league at the halfway point. But then they returned home in the second half of the season and ended up beating relegation by three points and winning the Turkish Cup two years later. Wow. So that's a, a nice story. And I think perhaps it can serve as a good omen for the affected clubs that they can come back stronger. That's actually an incredible story. And yeah, let's hope it sort of serves as, as, a, as something to inspire. As you say, like there's always this problem that, you know, obviously human life is the most important thing. And to talk about sport, people can say it's, it's frivolous and we shouldn't be talking about sport at times like this. On the other hand, people still need something to pick them up and people need something to bring them together as communities and to to feel there's sort of something valuable in that community. And I think football is such a great thing for that. Yeah, but I think it has to be someone's job to to make sure football can carry on, I think, in a time like this. Absolutely. I couldn't have put that better. So we'll leave it there for part one. We'll be back after a short break to tell you about some recent goings on in Portugal, Romania and Belgium. Welcome back to part two of the Sweeper podcast as we continue our continental roundup. Paul, am I right in thinking you used to play semi-professional football? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I, I did for a very brief time, uh, about a decade ago. And at what age were you when you hung up your boots? Well, I was <laughs> 26 when I basically gave up on any dream I had of being any good at football. I think you can tell where I'm going with this, can't you? I'm moving us on to talk about Kazumura, who at the age of 55 has just signed for a second tier team in Portugal. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it makes me feel like I'm about 20 years past being able to play proper football and I'm what, 
38. So the fact that this guy at 55 is just signed for Oliverense, I think it's pronounced in Portugal. In a way, it's inspirational, but in a way, it's sort of a bit embarrassing for the rest of us that, that you know, we can't use our age as an excuse anymore. Do you think he's actually going to play and make a contribution? Because he hasn't played yet since he signed. I suppose it's still early days. He's only been there a couple of weeks. But can a 55-year-old still really make an impact in a second division in Europe? I wouldn't have thought so. No, that's why the move was so surprising to me. I really wouldn't have thought so. I'd have thought the pace of the game, the level of the game would be beyond him. But that's why I wouldn't have thought he'd also have gone there to not play. You know, at that age, he hasn't got many years to to throw away sitting on a bench and it's a really really interesting one that was almost the most surprising aspect is for a player like that to now come to Europe you almost feel you'd be doing the opposite you'd be leaving to head back home but instead he's been back home and now he's coming back to Europe I know recently there's been something going around on Twitter recently about a goalkeeper in Sicily who's 59 have you seen this guy Salvatore Nassati and he's playing in the seventh tier in Italy, you know, in the Sicilian seventh tier for uh, Torre Grotta, I think it is. And it's great because all the comments like cat-like reflexes, incredible save, but the saves he seems to be making are fairly Sunday league, not to be disparaging. But, you know, and this this is a guy at 59. He's not much older than Casemiro, and he's playing in the seventh tier in Italy. So, yeah, that really brings forward, like, you're looking at a player who's, who's now going into a second tier European side. It's a very odd move. Yeah, and there is actually an older player who's playing professionally in Europe at the moment. I was speaking to Andrew Todos, who is the Ukrainian football journalist behind the Zoria Londonsk Twitter account the other day. And he was telling me that in Ukraine, there's a 56-year-old who's played this season for a club called Real Farmer in the third (laughs) tier of Ukrainian football, which is the lowest professional tier. And this guy's name is Mikola Likovidov. And he played on the 21st of October 2022 at the age of 56 years and 268 days. He's a historian by trade, and he actually only started his professional career at the age of 45, which (laughs) sounds quite funny. (laughs) That's amazing. His son, Andrei Likovidov, also became Ukraine's youngest ever pro in April 2014 at the age of 14. So you could have the youngest and oldest in the same team, theoretically, right? And they were. They were on the same pitch, a bit like the Gajonsons in Iceland, that famous story where Ida Gajonson came on to replace his dad. But they were for a brief period on, on the same pitch. But I feel like this story doesn't perhaps have the same integrity as Kazumura playing in Portugal, because the senior Likovidov, he is the founder and permanent president of the club. So I wonder oh, if he's literally just said, no, lads, I'm playing. I'm the owner. It's all going a bit hammer and Spartans on us, isn't it? Again, the owner who wants to put himself in. It, uh, yeah, that doesn't sound quite so so sort of wholesome. To touch back on that hammer and Spartan story, actually, which we talked about last time, this was Joseph Portelli, who had resigned as the president of the club in order to make an appearance at the end of the season. His request has since been turned down by the Maltese Football Association, and he's returned to the club as president, probably with his tail firmly between his legs. So that's <laughs> that's the, the latest on that story. I just want to bring it back to Kazumura briefly. And, and before we move on, just say that the cynic in me feels like this is a little bit more than just a football transfer because I've been doing a little bit of digging and I've seen that both of these clubs, as in Kazumura's parent club, Yokohama FC, and his new club, Oliverense, uh, they are both owned by the same company, 
It's the Onodera Group. It's a Japanese company which bought a 52.5% stake in Oliverense last year. And they're sort of looking to build this partnership, I think, where they are looking to make Oliverense a gateway for young Japanese players to come to Europe and, and sort of build on it like this. What better way to say you're going to bring young, talented Japanese players over than bringing the oldest possible <laughs> Japanese player? Yeah, when you put it like that, I suppose it does sound a bit stupid. Anyway, we'll be keeping a close eye on Oliver Rentz's fixtures. And we will, of course, tell you when Kazumiura makes his much anticipated debut for the club. And let's move from Portugal to Romania now, where football is seemingly being used to reward prisoners for good behaviour, Paul. Yeah, uh, if you see it as a reward. There's a game between Sepsi and Mjolveni, pardon my pronunciation. This is a top flight Romanian game and 25 Romanian prisoners were allowed to come and watch the game as a reward for the fact I think they'd done some land clearance as part of their like duties and they were allowed to come watch this game. But what I found quite amusing was the, the game was between the team that are rock bottom. It was Mjolveni, I think, who were rock bottom who had offered them the chance to come and watch them. <laughs> Um, and sure enough, they were 1-0 down and they scored a last-minute equaliser. So the, the prisoners did get to watch them grab a point. But yeah, it was just quite a funny picture because they'd allowed this group of prisoners to come. But as far as I could see, the entire stand was completely empty. And I think most of the ground was empty apart from this. 25 people stood looking very cold watching a one-all draw in the Romanian top flight. Well, I was going to say, if you were going to take your kids to the football, you wouldn't necessarily want to be sharing a stand with 25 convicts, would you? No, but what I couldn't tell was if they were the only people in attendance. It almost looked like they cleared most of the stadium. So I don't, maybe it was, you know, how in North Korea, they always get the military in to fill stadia to make them look like the stadium's bustling. I wondered if it was a sort of very tiny version of that, that they're trying to fill stands. So they were like, well, what can we do? All right, let's put these prisoners in the in behind the goal. I'd love to know more about it. I'm sure there's people who would be able to talk talk to us a bit more about how this came about and why. But um, it was just quite a funny image. This this team that are rock bottom, filling the stands with prisoners. Were there any escape attempts at the time? <laughs> well, the, what I did notice is there didn't seem to be an awful lot of steward presence around them. So I wonder, I wonder if, yeah, I mean, it, it would make a different kind of pitch invasion, wouldn't it, if they try and get <laughs> over the pitch to, to the other end. But I, I liked it as an initiative. It seemed quite a nice idea. Yeah, absolutely. I've got one more story for this segment that I wanted to include as well, which I accidentally stumbled upon last night on Reddit and was in absolute fits of laughter. That's the story of Belgium club Vesthoek's managerial difficulties. Have you heard about this, Paul? I've not heard anything about this. This week, they were set to announce one of their former players, Stin Mert, as their new coach. But they haven't been able to bring in the new coach because at the end of 2022, he was convicted of driving under the influence of cocaine, which is obviously a pretty serious offence in anyone's book. But this has become a particularly big problem because the club's main sponsor is a furniture company called Crack. <laughs> And their stadium is genuinely called the Crack Stadion. Oh, that's that's incredible. Oh, so, dear. Yeah, the, the furniture company at the moment have vetoed his appointment and the club have, have put the managerial appointment on hold. That is incredibly unfortunate. Oh, dear. <laughs> that just sounds like a really odd tie-in, doesn't it? It sounds like a really, almost like a marketing ploy. Oh, that's, that's yeah. awful. 
That's probably a tough story to top. So we'll leave part two there. We'll be back shortly for part three, where we'll take a look at some penalty problems, cup chaos, and some iconic inflatables. This is part three of the Sweeper podcast, where we'll be taking a look at some of the memorable moments in domestic cups across the continent over the past fortnight or so. Paul, do you want to kick us off with Northern Ireland? Yeah. So we had a, a tweet and this tweet came in from Northern Ireland's coefficient ranking or at NI coefficient. And it was asking whether anyone can match the record that Linfield have put together, this slightly unfortunate record this season, that they've been knocked out of four competitions on penalties already. So they were knocked out of the UEFA Conference League by RFS of Latvia. They were knocked out of the Scottish Challenge Cup, which always amuses me that, that Linfield would be in that, but that, that they were. Uh, knocked out by Kelty Hearts. Knocked out of the County Antrim Shield by Larne. And then lost to Larne again on penalties in the Irish Cup. Now, four penalty shootout defeats in a season. I don't think I can see anyone else who's done that. Not in serious competitions. So we're taking away sort of pre-season, you know, Saudi Arabian Challenge Shield games and all that kind of stuff. To be knocked out four proper competitions is pretty impressive. But the the tweet was actually pointing out that they've still got two potential uh, penalty shootout defeats to come in that they're, they're in the League Cup final on the 12th of March against Coleraine. And looking at them, I would back them to go out on penalties too. And then they'll have the Europe playoffs that come in May. And there could be penalty shootouts in those. So... At the moment, I would say four competition exits on penalties is pretty unheard of, but six would surely tip the balance. And and if anyone out there does know of a club that's managed four or more, please do get in touch with us. But I, I can't think of anyone who's who's lost. I don't know if you can, Lee. I, I can't think of anyone who's lost more than that in terms of penalty shootouts in a year. No, I can't. That was going to be my next question. Is there scope for them to build on this unwanted record this season? And, you know, the idea of going out of six competitions in one season on penalties would be pretty galling. It makes me wonder if they've just hired a load of English players from the 90s with with that kind of penalty record. Like, how do you explain such a terrible record in spot kicks? The, The interest is, from what I could see, they've not lost badly on penalties in any of them they simply four three five four so it's not even like they're just dreadful at taking penalties but nonetheless they've managed this record it's quite something it does it does make me think that you know whenever most people moan about how bad their team are at penalties this is this is next level well in austria at the moment there are a few salzburg fans bemoaning their luck from penalty kicks because Salzburg finally have been eliminated from the Austrian Cup and they lost to Sturm Graz in the quarterfinals on penalties a couple of weeks back. This was a huge defeat for them and just generally a big moment for football here in Austria because Salzburg are one of these clubs that they just dominate domestically almost like no other club in Europe. Mm. They've won the double in eight of the past nine seasons which I think is a record that's not matched, as far as I know, by any other club in Europe. If any of our listeners can think of a club that's won won the double that many times, then then do let us know. But they have this absolutely insane record in the Austrian Cup. They had won 27 ties in a row. They hadn't lost at home in the Cup since 2013. They'd scored... 241 goals compared to 29 conceded in their 58 ties 
since that 2013 defeat. And they have reached the final in every year over the last decade. That final record is getting close to FC Vaduz's uh, Liechtenstein final record. <laughs> yeah, good point. Because if there was a league in Liechtenstein, then surely Vaduz would have matched Salzburg's record. But with no league, they can't, I guess. But this was just such a big moment because it opens up finally the opportunity for another club here in Austria to win a trophy. You've got Rapid Vienna, the the record champions here, haven't won anything since 2008. Such a long time for their fan base. You've got Reed, who are sort of these perennial underdogs that seem to be doing well in the cup over the past decade or so. There's Lask still in there, Sturm Graz, who knocked Salzburg out. And a huge moment for them, by the way to finally knock Salzburg out of a competition. It just doesn't happen here. So as you can imagine, lots of stories being written about that. Lots of excitement across the football scene, just by any Austrian fan who is not a Salzburg fan, because they're excited to see the potential that somebody else could finally win a trophy. That's nice. It's a bit like um, a bit like the Italian delight when Juventus don't win something, isn't it? Like, you know, the, 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 the all-powerful, mighty conquering side finally humbled. Everyone can enjoy that apart from the fans of that club. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just especially pronounced here because of the Red Bull ownership, which is not hated as much as it is in Germany because Red Bull is an Austrian brand and mm. they have quite a high level of identification with Salzburg as a city. But still, I think people are quite happy that the they call them here the Dorsenverein, the, the can club essentially have been knocked out of a competition. So a fresh cup winner in Austria this year, which will be nice. Moving across to the Netherlands, we talked on the last episode about a 5-5 draw that had caught your eye. And I believe you found another high-scoring draw in the Dutch Cup this time. Yep, they're at it again. I feel like Dutch football is trying to make an advert for why you should watch it. So the the game that, that sprung to my attention was Feyenoord against Nijmegen. This Dutch Cup game and yeah, it ended 4-4. But actually, NEC Nijmegen were up, tunnel up until the last minute. So it looked like they were going to pull oh, off wow. this smash and grab raid. And what made that incredible in a way is that uh, Feyenoord had been all over them, really. And by the end of the game, Feyenoord had 50 shots, which is, I barely remember anyone having 50 shots. Only 27 on target. But Feyenoord pulled off this kind of last minute flurry. So they, they got a penalty and then there was a red card and they equalised and then took it into extra time and usually in that situation you'd expect it to be a pretty routine extra time win but instead no it, it ended up being 4-4 and then final one five three on penalties so it's just one of those games again like you say a game that had everything it, it ended up having everything um but yeah this this figure of 50 shots that that means final would obviously were, were shooting almost all the time <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it, it's kind of a staggering stat, that 50 shots. I don't think I've ever seen a team have 50 shots. Um, 27 on target is not bad either. Yeah, the, the way the game panned out is pretty amazing in itself, very exciting. But the 50 shots, I regularly watch a lot of Austrian and German Bundesliga and you see the shot statistics and any team that has over 20 shots in a game has completely dominated. So to have 50 and to be shooting sort of on average once every two minutes, that's... <laughs> That's staggering, really is. Pretty amazing. Yeah, no, I think Dutch football's really making a push for <laughs> push for our attention at the moment. Sort of, you can't help but, but notice these results popping out. As you say, 5-5, five, 4-4, five, four, four, 50 shots. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm a Dutch football convert. 
Yeah, I always associate Dutch football as being just really high scoring and entertaining. And I don't know whether that's just some notion I have in my mind, but certainly recent results seem to be bearing it out. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I feel like all nations football have this sort of stereotype of what they're like. And I'd agree, Dutch football, you have this vision of of sort of goal-filled, total football kind of fun football to watch. I'm not sure if that is necessarily the case. In the same way that in this still the stereotypical vision of Italian football is Casanaccio and really like defensively solid nil-nil results, which doesn't bear out even remotely, especially in the modern Serie A, which is one of the most entertaining and sort of bizarre leagues in the world, I think. Reputations stick, don't they? That's why. While we're latching on to things that we talked about in the last episode, do you remember we had a little bit of a chat about Soita, this mm. third-tier Spanish club based in North Africa who had a mackerel for a mascot? <laughs> I do very much remember that, yes. Well, now I've got another fish mascot-related story to bring you. This is sort of an <laughs> interesting little niche that we're carving out for ourselves, but I read about it only this week, and it concerns fourth-tier English club Grimsby Town, who have an iconic inflatable mascot called Harry the Haddock. Were you aware of Harry the Haddock's existence? I was not. I'm not. <laughs> so they, they just all bring in these big inflatable fish to their games. It's sort of a, a tradition by now in Grimsby, but they've reached the FA Cup fifth round for the first time since 1996, and they're up against Southampton, so three divisions higher than them. But Grimsby fans are really annoyed right now because Southampton have put a ban on any inflatable fish being brought into the stadium. <laughs> it's not a ban you can put on, is it? How can you ban well, just, a fish? Just any inflatables that, that they have been banned by Southampton. And so I've seen a few people writing on Twitter that they're looking to cause headaches for Southampton in other ways now that their inflatable fish mascots have been banned. And they actually had a similar situation a few years back when Grimsby were away to Barnet on the final day of the 2016 to 17 season. And Barnet had banned Harry the Haddock being brought into the stadium as well. So in response, the fans raised a thousand pounds to bring in a mariachi band called Beto Burrito to <laughs> 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 so come, so come to the stadium and play instead. And obviously, like, Barnett had already chosen to ban Harry the Haddock. So they thought, you know, it will be a PR disaster for us if we ban the mariachi band as well. So they let this, <laughs> they let this mariachi band in. And there's these brilliant videos on YouTube of all the Grimsby fans going to the game, wearing sombreros and singing along to the band. Absolutely great stuff. That's amazing. I kind of do want people to ban Harry the Haddock now because I think the ingenuity that they're showing in sort of getting around it and the extremes they'll go to are much more entertaining. That's a that's a brilliant story. Yeah, I didn't even realise you you could ban inflatables as well. It's quite uh, it seems a little bit party pooping to to ban them in the first place, to be honest. So um yeah, I'm very pro Harry the Haddock myself. We'll leave it there for part three. Time for a quick bit of music and then we'll move on to the bit Paul has been looking forward to the most. The Sweeper's first venture outside of Europe. Welcome back to the fourth and final part of this episode where we talk a little bit about stories beyond Europe's borders. I've been tweeting this week about the fact that there are only two top flight clubs in Europe that have not won a game 
in the league this season. So those clubs are Cremonese of Italy and Airbus Broughton of Wales. And they're curious stories in their own right, because you've got Cremonese, who can't win for love nor money in the league, but have somehow managed to knock Napoli and Roma out of the Coppa Italia and reach the semi-finals. And then you've got Airbus Broughton, who are actually on minus points this season because they fielded an ineligible player earlier on in the season and just haven't been able to pick up any points since. So you've got these two clubs that are just on an absolutely awful run of form. I believe, though, that you've found a few clubs on other continents that are having a similarly tough time of it. Yeah, there's two clubs that I've been following this season. One reason I'm following them is because it's an incredible case of unfortunate name for for both of these two. So there's a club in Liberia called Invincible Eleven. And I feel like that's making a strong statement. But then when you find out they are rock bottom and they've had 11 defeats from 15, the name starts to look a little bit embarrassing. There's some brilliantly named teams in Liberia as well. There's Heaven Eleven, which is a name because it's like a very Christian. It's like a a church-based squad. But yeah, Invincible Eleven have been anything but invincible. The other one that I've been watching, and I I don't know the background to this, but there's a club called Positive FC in the British Virgin Islands. And they've just lost 9-4 to Panthers at the weekend. And that's not a scoreline you see very often at all. But their their record this season is they've played 11 games, they've lost 11 games, they've scored eight goals, and they've conceded 104. So I would argue that's not the most positive season (laughs) for positive FC. So yeah, I always like to keep an eye on teams that have just created names for themselves that set themselves up for a fall, really. Um, There's an awesome FC in St. Vincent and Grenadines, but they're just kind of mid-table. They're they're totally average. (laughs) I like to think my locational geography is quite good, but I don't actually have a clue where the US Virgin Islands are. Where are they? Well, that's the British. Yeah, this was the British Virgin Islands, which obviously are pretty much next door to the US Virgin Islands. So with Caribbean, the Caribbean, I'm very vague about the Caribbean because my Caribbean geography is embarrassingly bad. Whereas my Pacific geography, Pacific Island geography, is probably like that would be my strong topic. That'd be my mastermind subject. Moving down from the Caribbean to Argentina, and this is a story that we both identify this week, the elimination from the Copa Argentina of top flight Tigre by a team from the fifth division called, I think, Centro Espanol. Yeah, and they, it's been hard to even find much out about this club because they are, they do have a Wikipedia page, so something but there's not a lot written about them and all the match reports didn't say a lot about the club as much as the fact that that it was an embarrassment for Tigre as far as I understand that they were Tigre were goal up as well like in the first minute weren't they so in terms of it looking like a shock I think within seconds it looked like oh this is going to be a routine win and then mm-hmm. it just slowly played out this was it penalty shootout victory I think for yes 5-4 in the end but I think one of the reasons why it was such a big shock is because we're kind of used to this kind of cup set in Europe, I think. You know, you look back at some of the ones we've already had this season. We had Darville in the mm. sixth tier of Scottish football knocking out Aberdeen. We had Strasbourg Königshofen knocking out Clermont Foot of the, the top division in, in France. But this is actually only the second time in the history of the Copa Argentina that a fifth tier team have eliminated a, a top flight team. So really is massive stuff. And I think there are a few facts that I sort of read about Central Espanol, which really made me realise what a tiny club they are. So first of all, they don't have their own stadium or training centre. 
their affiliation to the Argentinian Football Association has been suspended five times, and they have been in the fifth division for 61 years and never been promoted. So they've just oh. been ever-present in the fifth division. Oh, that makes the story even better then. So they basically lived their whole existence in this bottom layer of Argentinian football, and this must be the best thing that's ever happened to any of them, right? I mean, this is amazing. I think it's kind of a London bus situation where they've they've just had this cup set and now they are going to go up next season because the fourth and fifth tier, I think, are being merged in Argentina. So finally, after six decades, they will actually be moving up. It's a sort of technical promotion. It's not, it's yeah. not like top bus ride sort of promotion, is it? <laughs> no, I think they did come very close last season to getting an actual sporting promotion. But now it seems that due to a merger of the leagues, they will be moving up. But a real feel-good story anyway especially for a club that you know doesn't even have its own training ground that no that's lovely i I didn't know it's quite such a huge shock as you say it seems like such a thing wired into people who grew up watching the english fa cup you know this this idea of cup shocks and giant killers and yeah it's it's always a shock in different footballing cultures where you realize that's just not so much of a thing i mean everywhere's got a slight version of it but i remember going to italy and that's not really what the Coppa Italia, that's not, it's just not in the culture, that idea of the cup upset. It's just not such a thing, really. And the Coppa Italia is not, it's not taken quite the same way as the FA Cup is. It's So, yeah, I'm, I'm all in favour of, of that anyway. I think we've got one more feel-good story from our non-Europe segment now. And that's one that you found from Hong Kong with a goalkeeper scoring a last gasp goal, I believe. Yeah, I love this. So, uh, Freddie Toomer, who is, I'm pretty sure he's British, scored one of these ones where a goalkeeper comes up in the last minute so it's hot he's playing for hong kong fc against tai chung who also called resources capital i imagine for sponsorship reasons uh, in the hong kong premier league and i believe they're down to 10 men at the time hong kong fc and it's the 96th minute they're one nil down freddie tumor comes up for the corner the first ball's flicked onto the back post and it's an overhead kick a goalkeeper oh, wow. overhead kick goal now i don't think you get many of those last minute goalkeeper overhead kick equaliser that is absolutely fantastic i can imagine the scenes yeah there's because there's quite a big crowd there and they go absolutely mad as you'd expect it's well worth digging out if you can find the video of that one it was it's a a brilliant goal i imagine he's been telling people about that quite a bit you've got me thinking of other goalkeeper goals now and i think for me the most memorable goal i've ever seen by a goalkeeper would have to be jimmy glass in 1999 carlisle carlisle was it last minute to stay up wasn't it as well yeah so he was on loan at carlisle this was going into the final day of the season where carlisle were essentially battling for survival not just in their division but also in the football league they would have gone into into the non-league if they'd been relegated that season. And yeah, Jimmy Glass just came up in the very last second and scored a goal that prompted just a massive pitch invasion. And that was it. But your goalkeeper scoring, an on-loan goalkeeper scoring in the very last minute to keep you up on the last day of the season. I think that's one that struggles to be rivaled. Yeah, I still remember that. And I imagine whenever you hear the name Jimmy Glass, that's still... You cannot forget that goal. It's amazing. Think of a goalkeeper as well having a career that could span potentially 30 years. And it's that one moment. It's not the millions of brilliant bits of goalkeeping. It's not the the collected crosses. It's not the commanding your box. It's that one moment of madness where you're just in the opposition box and you hack a ball in. That will be what you're remembered for for like generations to come, isn't it? It's kind of an amazing thing, really. Anything more to add on our 
non-European roundup, Paul? No, I mean, the big thing, keeping an eye, as, as I imagine everyone else is, on the OFC Champions League preliminaries. <laughs> they kick off at the weekend in Samoa. So teams from the Cook Islands, American Samoa and Samoa are, are meeting up in Samoa. And that'll be really interesting to see what happens with that one. It's a very, very long road for those clubs. But yeah, lots of really long named teams. So you've got Tupapa Marenga from Cook Islands. You've got Iloa and Toamuata from American Samoa and Lupe Ola Suaga from Samoa and Ve Tongo from Tonga. So <laughs> it's one for people who like lots of vowels. I'm sure you'll be tweeting about that. So anybody wanting to find out a little bit more about the Oceania Champions League should follow you on Twitter. Your handle is, remind us? At Paul underscore C underscore Watson. There we go. We'll leave it there for today's episode of the Sweeper podcast. We'll be back with another roundup episode in a couple of weeks time. If you enjoyed our final segment on global football and want to hear more of that, make sure to tweet us and let us know at SweeperPod. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter via DM or via email at sweeperpod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments or want to suggest stories for us to cover on future episodes. Lastly, we have a small favour to ask. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're a Twitter user, please help us out by retweeting the episode link for this podcast, which you'll find as the pinned tweet in our profile. It only takes a couple of seconds, but it can have a big impact on bringing in new listeners, helping us to grow, and us making more content in the future as a result. Thanks, and see you next time. You've been listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast. If you like what you've heard, come and follow us on Twitter at SweeperPod and leave a review for us on your podcast platform of choice. Special thanks go to the Gentleman Creatives Design Agency in Vienna, Austria for their amazing graphics and logos. You'll find them too if you come to our Twitter page. Sweeper.